Hi, it's Eric again. If it feels like I'm always asking you for money, it's because I'm always asking you for money. That's because producing a high-quality podcast like Making Gay History costs a lot. Between ten dollars and $20,000 for each episode, for the audio and all the extra resources and archival photos you'll find on our website. One way to help us keep bringing LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it is to join our Patreon community, $5 a month or $60 a year. And for that, you get a front row seat to my interviews with present-day history makers, behind-the-scenes production conversations, and delicious clips from my archive that we couldn't include in regular episodes. Right now, we have 200 Patreon followers. That's just a fraction of our many thousands of listeners. Can you help us double that by the 55th anniversary of Stonewall this coming Pride Month? We can't do what we do without all our supporters. And if you aren't one already, I hope you will be soon. Or, if you are already... Get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. That's patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. I'm Eric Marcus. Welcome to the second season of Making Gay History. In this episode, you'll meet two very different heroes of the LGBTQ civil rights movement, people I'd never expected to find in the same room. Beginning in the early 1960s, Randy Wicker promoted the then-radical idea that homosexuals should be accepted because they were just like everyone else. Randy led the first public protest against anti-gay discrimination in 1964, dressed in a coat and tie. Marsha P. Johnson was Randy's public relations nightmare, a self-described drag queen hustler with a long arrest record and a history of mental health issues, who was best known for her role in the 1969 Stonewall Uprising. My plan was to interview Randy at his Art Deco lamp shop, just a few blocks west of the Stonewall Inn. But Randy had other ideas. He suggested we go to his place across the Hudson River in Hoboken, New Jersey, where I could talk with Marsha as well. I had no idea they were roommates. When we get to Randy's modest apartment, Marsha's in the kitchen making dinner. After a few minutes, she walks into the living room. She drapes herself in a chair like a cat in slow motion and absentmindedly starts sorting through her shoulder bag. A frosted wig comes to the surface and then disappears and then comes back to the surface again. Before I can get the wires to the lapel mics untangled, Randy is talking a mile a minute. He's throwing off so much nervous energy that I wish to myself they'd offered me something stronger to drink than water. I ask them both to sit still for a second so I can clip the mics to their collars. I go back to my chair, reach across to the cocktail table to my tape recorder, and press record. Marsha's the only one, she, she's the only one everyone agrees was at the Stonewall riots. There were a lot of other people, but everyone agrees that Marsha was there, so... The way I, I winded up being at Stonewall that night, I was having a party uptown, and we were all out there, and Miss Sylvia and Rivera and them were over in the park having a cocktail, 
I was uptown. I didn't get downtown till about two o'clock. Cause when I got downtown, the place was already on fire and it was a raid already. The riots had already started, and they said the police went in there and set the place on fire. They said the police set it on fire because they they originally wanted the stone wall to close, so they had several raids, and there was this uh, Tiffany and. Oh, this other drag queen that used to work there in the coat check room, and then they had all these bartenders. And night before the Stonewall riots started, before they closed the bar, we were all there, and we all had lined up against the walls, and they was all searching us. The police were? Yeah, they searched every single body that came there, because uh, the place was supposed to be closed, and they opened anyway. Because every time the police came, what they would do, they would take the money from the coat check room and take the money from the bar. So if they heard the police were coming, they would take all the money and hide it up under the bar in these boxes out of the register. And you know, and sometimes they would hide like under the floor or something. So when they got it, when the police got in, all they got was the bartender's tips. Who went to the stone wall? Well, uh, at first, it was just a gay men's bar, and they didn't allow no uh, women in. And then they start allowing women in, and then they let the drag queens in. I was one of the first drag queens to go to that place. Because <laughs> we when we first heard about this, and then they had these drag queens working there. They didn't never arrest anybody at the Stonewall. All they did was line us up and tell us to get out. Were you one of but, those that got in the chorus lines and kicked their heels up at the police? Like like uh, Ziegfeld Folly Girls or Rockettes? Oh, no. No, we were too busy throwing over cars and screaming in the middle of the street because we were so upset because they closed that place. What were you screaming in the street? Huh? What did you say to the police? We just were saying no more police brutality and oh, we had enough of uh, police harassment in the village and other places. Oh, there was a lot of little chance we used to do in those days. Ray, were you at, Stone, at Stonewall then as well? Did you know Marsha? No, no, I met Marsha. Marsha moved in here about eight years ago. I, well, I had met Marsha in 1973 as an advocate reporter. The GAA people had freed her. Yeah, it was, they had uh, locked up our gay sister, Marsha Johnson, but they went into the mental hospital and they snuck her out in an elevator and they ran out the door. Now, the reason they, she was in the mental hospital is she took LSD and was sitting in the middle of either Houston Street or it wasn't LSD. pulling the sun. Well, whatever. It was, what, what do you call that? Um, Mescaline? No. What's that other fear stuff? Belladonna? Uh-uh. Purple passion or something. <laughs> but anyway, she was sitting in the middle, like pulling the sun to the earth. But fortunately, before the world ended and the sun hit the earth, the paddy wagon from Bellevue came and took uh -huh. Marsha away to the mental ward. And that's how she ended up getting on SSI as a mental case. Uh -huh. Because they obviously saw, you know, she had a history of prostitution going back to 62. And I had met Marsha. I mean, when I did this article, this story, I, and my impression of Marsha was that she was sweet. But, you know, a little bit spacey. So when this boy I met at the gate and he said, I said, would you ever go to the village? Oh, yeah, I go to the village. I run around with Marsha. And, I mean, he was a nice white boy. And I said, I don't know that, you know, Marsha's the kind of person that, you know, you should really be hanging out with. Well, to make a long story, this boy really became like my adopted son. But he moved in, I guess, in January. And he one, it was 10 degrees. And he said, you know, he said, Marsha, you know, she's out there. You know, she doesn't have anywhere to sleep. 
you know, she didn't mind sleeping on the floor. Couldn't she come home and sleep on the rug? And I said, Willie, I said, are you absolutely sure she's not going to rip us off? You know, I mean, I don't, you know. And he said, I, I know, no, she won't rip us off. Well, Marsha came in, I guess, in 79 or 80, began sleeping on the rug here. You know, I mean, I got to know her and like her, and she became one of my, I'm a big Marsha fan now. It was so funny because, I mean, I counseled Willie. Marsha wasn't the right. kind of person, you know, you want to get involved with and run around with, you know. And you've lived together now for eight years. Yeah, yeah. You know, were there lots of people hurt at the Stonewall that night at the, uh, during the riots? They weren't hurt at the Stonewall. They were hurt on the streets outside of the Stonewall because people were throwing bottles and the police were out there with those clubs and uh -huh. things and their helmets on, the riot helmets. Were you afraid of being arrested? Oh, no, because I've been going to jail for, uh, like, ten years before the Stonewall. I was going to jail because I was, I was originally up on 42nd Street. And every time we go, you know, like, going out to hustle all the time, they would just get us and tell us we were under arrest. Mm -hmm. Drag queen ho hooker. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they say, all use drag queens under, under arrest. So we start, you know, it was just for wearing a little bit of makeup down 42nd Street. Who were the kinds of people you met up at 42nd Street when you were hustling up there? Oh, this was all these queens uh -huh. from from Harlem, from the Bronx. A lot of them are dead now. I mean, I hardly ever see anybody from those days. But these were like queens from the Bronx, from Brooklyn, from New Jersey. Where I'm from, I'm from Elizabeth, New Jersey. See, I, I, I Stonewall... I don't want I shouldn't start on this right, note, sure. but it puts me in the worst light because by the time Stonewall happened, I was running my button shop in East Village. And for all the years in Mattachine, and you see the pictures of me on TV, I'm wearing a suit and tie, and I had spent 10 years of my life going around telling people homosexuals look just like everybody else. We didn't all wear makeup and wear dresses and have false set of voices among us kids and were communists and all this. And all of a sudden, Stonewall broke out, and there were reports in the press of chorus lines of queens kicking up their heels at the cops like rockets, you know, we are the Stonewall girls, and, you know, fuck you, police. And this, I thought, you know, it was like Jesse Jackson used to say, uh, rocks through windows don't open doors. I felt this, I was horrified. I mean, the last thing... To me, they, I thought at the time they were setting back the gang liberation movement 20 years because, I mean, all these TV shows and all this work that we had done to try to establish legitimacy of the gay movement, that they were, we were nice middle-class people like everybody else and, you know, adjusted and all that, and suddenly there was all this what I considered riffraff, and I gave a speech. I was asked to speak. I, I was asked to, to speak at the Electric Circus, which was a major, which was a major. Oh, Marcia, you just got me. Where are you going? What were you doing? It's dragging. Oh, she's outside? Uh, yeah. Come on, sweetie. I've got the, Here the, it is. It's up here. The, the little, uh, clip? No. Watch out. God, you're so dumb. Go ahead. <laughs> You think so? Yeah. Okay, you were saying about Stonewall. Yeah, I was saying I was running my uh, shop in East Village, the button shop, the big hippie shop. And when this happened, I was horrified because it was civil disorder. Somewhere I saw a picture from Stonewall, and it had a big sign-up from the Mattachine Society, which was one of my base groups. 
who said the Manichean Society asked citizens to obey the police, to not obey the police, but to respect law and order, to act in a lawful manner. In other words, the Manichean itself was basically a conservative organization. And they had a, they asked me to speak at the Electric Circus. And I got up and said that I did not think that the way to win public acceptance was to go out and form chorus lines of drag queens kicking your feet up at the police. And I was just beginning to speak, and one of the bouncers at the electric circuits found out that it was a gay thing, that the guy up there talking was gay, and somebody standing next to him, he said to them, are you one of them? And the guy said yes, and he began beating the hell out of him, and this riot broke out in the electric circus. And I remember driving him home because the kid was only about 21 or 22 years old. And he said, all I know is that I've been in this movement for three days and I've been beaten up three times. I mean, he had a black eye and, you know, a puffed up face. I mean, oh, no serious terrible. damage. But but the thing was that, that you were dealing with a new thing. And he shows that what my generation did, we built the ideology. You know, are we sick? Aren't we sick? What are the scientific facts? How have we been brainwashed by society? We put together like, you know... Lenin, I mean, Mark Karl Marx wrote the book. That's what we did. But it literally took Stonewall, and here I was considered the first militant and a visionary leader of the gay movement, did not even realize when the revolution, if you want to call it this, this thing that I thought would never happen, that a small nuclei of people would become a mass social movement was occurring. I was against it. So I'm very happy Stonewall happened. I'm very happy the way things worked out. Now, you mentioned an organization that, that Marsha, that you were involved with. What was the name? Street, Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries with Miss Sylvia Rivera. Star. What, what, uh, was, what was that group about? What was it for? Uh, it was a group for transvestites. It was a bunch Men of... Men and women transvestites. Mm -hmm. It was a bunch of flaky, fucked up transvestites but, living in a hovel in a slum somewhere, calling themselves revolutionaries. That's what it was, in my opinion. Now, Marsha has a different idea. What's your opinion? <laughs> Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries started out as a very good group. It was uh, after Stonewall they started. They started at GAA. Mm -hmm. Mama Jean Devante, who used to be the marshal for all the parades, she was the one that talked Sylvia and Rivera into leaving GAA. Because Sylvia Rivera, who was the president of STAR, was a member of GAA and started a group of her own. And so she started uh, Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, and she asked me would I come and be the vice president of that organization. You know, they had an apartment, they didn't have the money to keep up the rent, and they began fighting over who was using drugs or who was paying rent or who was taking whose makeup, and I mean, it got to be pretty pretty low life and pretty ugly. No, the building was owned by Michael Umbers, who was in jail. And then Michael Umbers, when he went to jail... The city took over the building and had everybody thrown out. Huh. But originally, rent was the rent was uh, paid to Michael Umbers, who went to jail, and Bubbles Rose Lee, Bubbles Rose Lee, who was the secretary to Star. <laughs> she had all kinds of things mobating around around the building and stuff, you know. And so the city just came and closed the building down. The dream of Star House was to provide a safe place for street kids. But those kids were just a little younger than Marsha and Sylvia, who were in their early 20s and still had to hustle to survive. 
Marcia died in July 1992. Her body was found floating in the Hudson River near the piers on the western edge of Greenwich Village. She was 46. The New York City medical examiner ruled her death a suicide, but Marcia's friends believed she was beaten to death or accidentally fell in the river. They lobbied for a new investigation, and 20 years after Marcia's death, the district attorney's office agreed to reopen the case. To learn more about Marsha P. Johnson and Randy Wicker, please visit makinggayhistory.com. That's where you can listen to all our previous episodes and also find photos and really interesting background information on each of the people we feature. I've got a few key people to thank for making this podcast possible. Thank you to our executive producer, Sarah Burningham, our co-producer, Jenna Weiss-Berman. Thanks also to our audio engineer, Casey Holford, our webmaster, Jonathan Dozier-Ezel, our social media advisor, Will Coley, and our head of research, Zachary Seltzer. Our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers. A special thank you to Matthew Reamer and Leighton Brown, the men behind the LGBT History Instagram account, who have so generously spread the word about making gay history. Be sure to follow them at LGBT underscore history. I learn something new from them every day. Making Gay History is a co-production of Pineapple Street Media with assistance from the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division. Season two of this podcast is made possible with support from the Ford Foundation, which is on the front lines of social change worldwide. And if you like what you've heard, please subscribe to Making Gay History on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. So long, until next time. <laughs>